Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves. Coming to you from the banks of the powdery and fleecy St. Brain River and almost always sunny, but unusually snowy, Longmont, Colorado, I'm Ben Kolb, and I'm joined as always by the best in the business, Becky Peters. And Becky and I have a really neat opportunity this weekend. We get to speak at the Camel Conference. Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? It's hump day. The Camel Conference stands for the Colorado Association of Middle Level Education. And the theme of their conference this year is the power of joyful teaching. And so Becky and I were prepping for this conference and being intentional about trying to find giants in education who've talked about joyful teaching. And it really hit us that this isn't a topic that just middle school teachers at this conference need to learn from, but it's something we can all learn from. So we probably say this about every topic that we've covered on the show, but finding joy in what, how, and who we teach isn't just an important thing, it's the most important thing. And I love that the theme of the conference this year isn't just joyful teaching, but the power of joyful teaching. Because when you teach with joy, it is basically a superpower. Like, I'm not a math teacher, but I bet when you teach with joy, it quintuples your effectiveness or something like that. I know when I think of my favorite all-time teachers, joy is one of the first words that comes to my mind when I describe them. And we know attitudes are contagious. And so when they were joyful, I was joyful too. And like the saying goes, what we learn with joy, we never forget. Oh, that's so beautiful, Ben. And we usually start with why, start with the why in this podcast. And I think this one's a little bit easy because we can all agree with that why. Because our joy makes a difference. It can create more of that joy in a perpetual cycle or the absence of it can create a vacuum where that joy should be. And learning itself really should be a joyful endeavor. I think sometimes we fall, we all fall into the trap talking about like, you know, recess is when the kids have fun at school, but really the learning is when they should be having fun. Learning is joyful. Ben and I have been up like all night drinking Red Bull and doing push-ups and scouring through almost all of our 50 released episodes, parsing through over 120,000 seconds of interviews with best-selling authors, speakers, and trendsetters to bring you our favorite moments around the topic of being powerful through joyful teaching. So we're each going to share a few of our favorite moments and how we've seen them in practice or maybe how we've put those into a practice ourselves. I'll start us off. Three episodes ago, in episode 44, we interviewed Brain Rules author Dr. John Medina, and he has one of the most complex jobs on the planet. He's a developmental molecular biologist, and maybe reading a Wikipedia article on developmental molecular biology might be more effective than like even melatonin, than helping people fall asleep. But our interview with him was received with rave reviews because he was so engaging, and it was one of my takeaways for that. He's just, he's so joyful. I think the listenability of that episode episode was partly because of the joy that Dr. Medina has for both his subject and for life, and it just was really contagious. I don't think any of us are naive enough to think that joy is something that just happens to us. It's definitely something that we have to work at and cultivate, and something that we can't possibly just let rest on circumstance because we know that it's so important. So Ben, let's joyfully share some of our favorite lessons from giants around the power of joyful teaching. What have you got? Giddy up. Yes, that sounds fantastic. And we're searching for a structure to kind of house all of our different sound bites from giants in education. And Martin Seligman is the founder of Positive Psychology, and he writes a lot about the elements that you need to be happy. And we know happy and joy aren't the same thing, but they're very, there's some similar elements there. So the five elements based on Dr. Seligman's work that we're going to use to house and structure this episode is all around the PERMA model, P E 
RMA is the acronym. And it's not just Seligman. Tons of positive psychologists use this acronym to talk about what elements do we need in our lives to be happy. And so the PERMA stands for positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement or accomplishments. So like Becky said, we've scoured through our back log of audio and found awesome tips from guests who talk about each of the letters of PERMA. So let's giddy up, starting with a P, and we're going to go with positive emotion with the P. We need that in place to be happy, to be joyful. And I can't think of a guest who's done a better job of speaking to that than Chase Milkey. So we interviewed him a few episodes back, and he wrote a book called The Burnout Cure. And a lot of his book is actually based on Seligman's research. And he has a ton of great one-liners about positive emotion and optimism. But one of my favorite points is when he says... I don't think there's a teacher out there or even a person out there that doesn't feel as though our circumstances can influence our well-being. You know, I think of something like having really, really challenging students can affect our well-being and having very large class sizes can affect our well-being. But with the research that I've done and and looking into the many studies in well-being, there's quite a lot of data out there that circumstances might not weigh as much as we think. Um, So one of the main set of researchers I cite is Keenan Sheldon and Sonia Lubomirsky, their sustainable happiness model. And they did a meta-analysis of hundreds of different studies on well-being. And their report kind of found that circumstances only account for about 10% of the variance of our happiness. Um, So does impact us, but 40% of the variance comes from our intentional actions, what our behaviors are, what we decide to spend our energy on. And that was one of the first like keystones when I was wanting to double down and recommit to education of just recognizing that the circumstances matter, but my actions matter more. And that my energy and how I dedicate my resources is going to do more for my well-being than simply jumping ship to a whole nother occupation or, you know, just getting a new strength of students that if I don't figure these things out internally, I'm just going to keep facing those same challenges again and again. I just love how he says that, Becky. Circumstances do matter, but my reaction or my actions matter more. So when we look at our joyfulness or our happiness, positive emotions or circumstances are important, but they're not as important as how we react and respond to those. So I've really tried to take this to heart. And all throughout this episode, Becky and I are also preaching to ourselves that um, we're trying to do these things. So I'm trying to own my happiness to guard my happiness. I'm not letting tripped up lessons or angry parents or grumpy colleagues dictate my happiness because I'm the owner of it. I think another huge component of the P, the positive emotion, comes to what are you looking for? And another quote from Chase Milkey in our episode with him, he talks about this thing called inattentional blindness, how we can't observe two things at the same time. And he says... The gist is that we can only really pay attention to one thing at a time. Uh, Our brains are built to be able to switch back and forth between different thoughts. But if you're asked to look for one thing, you're going to be more likely to find that thing. Um, But what the studies have also revealed is that by looking for one thing, you are more likely to miss observing something else. But I think it's, it's true for the classroom because... 
teaching sets us up in a situation where we have really high expectations and we have a vision of what excellence looks like and we are pushing for kids to improve. And because in order to do that, we have to kind of notice where they're at and notice what isn't good and notice where the flaws are so we can fix the flaws. So we end up orienting our brains to just look for what's not going well. And we notice it like crazy. I think the most tangible example is, you know, if you were asked to, to notice how many kids were chewing gum, let's say you don't want kids to chew gum gum in your class and you just set out to look for gum chewers like you're probably going to notice a lot of gum chewers but in the process of that you're going to miss kids who like are doing really good things and kind things um and so you know sometimes that happens where a student walks into our classroom where they already have a reputation we already know their name we've already heard all these negative unpleasant stories about that kid and so instantly when that kid enters our room, we're on edge, looking for the bad, looking for the flaws, looking for the deficiencies, and we notice them all. But then in the process, we don't notice all the potential the kid had or how many good experiences the, the individual had. And the student, therefore, is at a disadvantage because of our biases. So we really have to work hard to look for a diverse experience and especially look for kids to do things that are good. Um, and even our colleagues look for them to do things that are good because if we look for them, we might be surprised just how many good experiences we do have right in front of us. That's so interesting, Ben, too. Some of the, when you were talking before about how you're the owner of your own happiness, like that's a lesson I think we try to teach to, like I try to teach to my kids all the time. Nobody's going to make your day. You're going to make your own day. Um, and I think that's something that's just a really good life lesson that we're all working on constantly. Um, and the inattentional blindness is actually a really good connection. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. But the another way I was prepping for this uh, episode and watching a, a video clip that where Dr. Seligman talks about his permamolital. And when he was talking about positive emotion, sometimes it comes in the way of like cheerfulness. And he says from research that we know that there's actually a genetic component to how cheerful a disposition you typically have. But then there's obviously the flip side, the environmental or nurture component of that. And that's obviously malleable. malleable sorry. And one way that he talks about improving positive emotion is to write down three things every night that, that went well for you that day. And he said that that simple practice actually had a statistically significant improvement on people's levels of depression after just six months. And back to what we were talking about before, it's self-reinforcing. So the more you do it, the more you want to do it. So let's move on to the next letter in the PERMA model, and that is the E, which stands for engagement. The definition of engagement in our industry, I feel like sometimes gets really muddled. We talk about student engagement, we talk about our own engagement, but the way that this model describes it is a, is kind of like about flow. When, when time flies by because we are so engaged in what we're doing, because our strengths match the challenge in front of us. Or in episode 21, when we talked to Dr. Allison Zamuda, she said... So to me, as I define engagement, engagement is that ability for students and, and teachers to see that it requires deep thinking and analysis and problem solving. And so engagement is not necessarily this Pollyanna or always joyful enterprise. Deep engagement has a furrowed brow or Ooh. a level of frustration. It, it's likely more of what a roller coaster ride looks like with oh. some highs and lows. So we know that our brains tempt us to think in binary. We have a binary bias. And sometimes when we think of engagement, we think that the opposite of it might be struggle or disengagement or frustration. But that might all be part of that same roller coaster ride like Zamuda just talked to us about. And hard work, productive struggle, those are also powerful 
powerful elements of joy. So when we were talking before about how the learning can be just as much fun as the recess, I think that's kind of what I was trying to get at. So like, imagine working on mindless tasks all day that didn't require deep mental energy and how joyless that would be if that was all there was for you. So let's consider that too when we're talking about joy in our teaching. Another lesson that we learned about uh, the power of engagement comes from episode 37, School Leadership Reimagined, where we got to speak with our guest, Dr. Robin Jackson, who has authored a ton of great books, hosts a podcast, and keynotes giant education conferences all the time. And she said, We are in so much trouble if when we hear people speak, and I started hearing it and seeing it in other places, I see it in the speeches that I do all the time. I, I'm like, see people just kind of shutting out. They haven't even met me. They don't know what I have to say. They're just mad because somebody's making them go to that workshop and they just shut down. But if you don't take every opportunity to learn something, if you're not looking at everybody as they have something that they can teach me, then you're really significantly cutting yourself off from some insights, some perspectives that could really broaden your own. I just feel like, you know, whether you're a teacher and you're, you know, getting really bad PD and I don't think teachers should have bad PD, but if you are getting it, make the most of it. Be curious instead of furious. If you're an administrator and you have judged a teacher and decided that's a bad teacher, well, nobody is going to be influenced by you as long as you're judging them. So you've got to stop looking at a teacher and say, why would somebody do something like that? What's wrong with that person? And start thinking, I wonder why the teacher would do something like that. Let me be curious. Let me talk to the teacher. Let me ask. Let me understand this more so I can figure out how to help them. If you have a student who's acting out in class and you're just like, you know, that kid needs to get out of my class. He's lazy. He's whatever. Then you're not being curious about that kid. So you can't help that kid. And I just think as a profession, if you're going to spark that curiosity in kids, then we have to take a hard look at ourselves and say, how often are we shutting down our own curiosity and choosing to be furious? Um, and if we, and like I always say, be who you want to see. If you want kids to be open to learning, we've got to be more open to learning. So the mind is a single track machine. We don't do multiple emotions very well at the same time, just like we don't do multiple tasks at the same time. So I love her, how she contemplates um, that advice about like trying to be curious and not furious or to be curious about something in order to decrease our immediate tendency towards judgment because you can't judge something and be curious about it at the same time. I think oftentimes our engagement in things like professional development is a matter of us, Ben, just like you were talking about before, choosing to be happy. It's about us choosing to engage and to be curious and actually choosing not to disengage in that moment. I think part of it too is even recognizing when we're choosing curiosity and inquiry or when we're choosing to close ourselves off can be a powerful practice in and of itself because a lot of times we just do that unconsciously. Bill Nye's got an awesome quote about that. He says, everyone you will ever meet knows something that you don't. And I think it kind of goes back, like I said, to the, um, like you were talking about the inattentional blindness too. When I go into something looking for things to be mad about, consciously or unconsciously, I'm going to find something to be mad about. So instead, I am really going to push myself to walk into meetings or classrooms without the assumption that I have all the answers because I know that there is something I can learn. And that alone can help us increase our own engagement in continuous learning and help us to model that commitment um, to our students as well so that they can be engaged in their own learning too. Totally. Yeah. I th the Robin Jackson thing totally makes me think of you tend to find what you're looking for and yeah, for sure, let's engage in the work and and do it wholeheartedly. And I think another part of engagement is focusing on the process, not on the, 
the goal or the end product. So I'm, and this is something I'm working really hard on is being action oriented, focused on doing in the present, not on what may have gone wrong in the past, not worrying about what might go wrong in the future. Uh, It's all about not ruminating on the past, projecting anxiety to the future, but living in the moment, teaching in the moment. And that advice came through loud and clear in our last episode with Dr. Jim Affermau, who really works with top athletes in the NFL, the NBA, the Major League Baseball. He's worked with a bunch of Olympic teams, and his advice to his top performing clients is being process-oriented, like he says here. Well, I think there's a time and a place for a product, which is, what do I want? You know, what, what are, you know, I want straight A's, or I want the, you know, academic or athletic scholarship. You know, we, we want certain outcomes and that's great. That's, you know, that should, that gives us direction It you know, and it also provides us with a lot of motivation, but uh, we also need the process, which is what specific steps am I going to take today or right now to put me in a more favorable position for achieving those outcomes. And, you know, in terms of turning the page, having a process or a routine to help you to turn the, pra- uh, the the page is important. So for example, some athletes I've worked with, they, their attitude is, you know, no matter whether we won or lost today, or I played great or had the worst day of the season, when clock when the clock strikes midnight, today's over and tomorrow starts. And, it, you know, today might as well be 100 years ago, you know, so that's their routine or, you know, kind of their their trigger for letting go of today and then starting their focus on tomorrow. So having some sort of routine that helps you to, you know, kind of move on to the next thing I think is really important. And I really like that Aphromau has his clients focus on what will produce results, not the results themselves. Uh, Bill Walsh was a famous coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he has a really cool quote that is focus on the process, not the prize. He would tell his players over and over, process, not the prize. And by focusing on the process of getting better at football, the prize will be theirs. And it worked because they focused on the process. His team won three Super Bowl trophies. And so you get the prize when you focus on the process. So when I think of engaging, it's all about the process. So don't psych yourself out with huge goals. Instead, deconstruct those goals into the small parts. So don't focus or ruminate on an a great, perfect lesson, break it down into what are aspects of a dynamic lesson? What can I plan for right now to get to that? Don't be anxious about how bad your classroom management is. Instead, focus on the process of what structures or procedures do I need to build and what can I do right now to have a well-managed class? So rather than having an overwhelming goal, break it into pieces and focus on the process. Uh, Love the E. That's fantastic. Let's get the R, Becky. What we got with the R? Well, the R is relationships, which I I feel like is is sort of a double edged sword for us. Um, I think sometimes we overemphasize the importance of uh, relationships, but then other times we underemphasize it. So it's it's kind of an interesting topic for me. But I think relationships, belonging, and social connections are really being proven to be more important than we ever thought with respect to human happiness, and we can't ignore that in the classroom. That's a huge part of our jobs. But our social lives are actually what we ponder about when we're daydreaming or when we're trying not to think about anything else. It's our 
default mode. And scientists have actually shown that the same pain centers in our brain light up when we're in actual physical pain as what the same as when we're isolated from or shunned by others. Even when I, there's a study where there's like a, a fake, it's called like cyberball or something. And like Ben, you and I are planning on playing online and there's a third person that jumps in. And if you start throwing the fake ball online to this other person, those pain centers in my brain light up. So I mean, it can be a I would simple, never throw the yeah. ball to someone else. <laughs> oh, thanks, buddy. I really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but the, I mean, we're such deeply social animals and no matter how introverted we are, we will always have that instinctual need. There's an awesome book about this called The Social Animal by David Brooks. I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. I'd, I'd love to get him on the show. But when we think about relationships, there are a few different ones that we want to discuss. I think default, as teachers, we go to our relationships with our students, which we are going to spend some time talking about. But you really have relationships to your classroom, like your students, but also to your colleagues, to your craft, and to your content. So your relationship with your content will affect your student relationships with that content. Um, how I feel about math is going to change how my students feel about math. And your relationship with your craft, how your classroom management, your pedagogy can actually make or break your efforts to be the best practitioner that you can be. So we'll come back to relationships with colleagues in a minute. But when I think about relationships with students in my classroom, the giant who sticks out in my mind is back in episode 10, when we talked to uh, the head of the ed tech team, Jenny Magira, who was a teacher in Chicago, Chicago public schools. And she talked about having true relationships with her students when she spoke about this in my first couple years of teaching you know you you want to survive and I didn't eat lunch for years you know and no one does you know I I was at one of those schools where you had 20 minutes after you dropped off your kids to like go to the bathroom make two calls to a parent and then it's like lunch is over pick up your class Um, but I started doing something that I was inspired by some of my colleagues doing which is like I'm going to eat lunch every day but I'm going to do it not by sitting in the teacher's lounge but by like sitting with my kids and it's a time for me to talk to them and not about like, did you do your homework or like stop, you know, bothering Jaheem every day, la la la. But like, just like chat, like, oh, you're into Avatar. Cool. Like my cousins are, let's talk. Um, and I would, I would eat lunch at a different table every day and sit with different kids. And um, it, it became like my favorite part of the day because I could just be me and just talk to my kids and get to know them. Um, something else too is, is especially if you work in a high needs area. So I've always served in um, what folks call like underserved or low income, high risk schools. And I think that we fall, especially if we were lucky enough to be raised in a more privileged community and an upbringing to feel like when you serve in those communities that you're trying to save the students, like Mm. I'm to bring them opportunities and I need to save them and I need to like help them see the doorways they can walk through. And I think that there's a level of arrogance and hubris in that thinking. And so to be really careful about seeing our kids as whole people and not as, as you know, units that you need to shove knowledge into or underserved students who you need to save or a kid with an IEP that I need to like get to the next level. But like as human beings, that shift in thinking is is really nuanced and minute. But if you really think about it, like, how are you thinking about these kids? Are you thinking about them like you think of your own siblings or cousins or children? 
I love the way she spoke about that. I really appreciate it. I think it's so easy, again, going back to that quote that we talked about before, it's so easy to depersonalize the humans we have in front of us and see them more like the labels we put on them because those are necessary shorthand, like Cornelius Minor reminded us. But he also encouraged us to find the poetry in our students and to look past those labels. Early on, before I even knew a lot about teaching, I knew a lot about verse. And so I would approach my classroom that way, where every kid I saw, I was like, how can I see this kid like no other person has seen them before? And how can I speak to them? And how can I describe them? And how can I teach them like no other person has done before? And, you know, and the beauty in poetry is that the poet sits with a pen or walks through nature or walks through a city and and they try a thing and it doesn't work and they try it again and it doesn't work and they try it again. And, and for me, that that's teaching. That like, I want to find the poetry in this kid. So I'm going to try to reach this kid in one way and it might not work. And I'll try it again in a different way and it might not work. And I try it a third way. And I think that that's it, that the poet's job is to be observer. And I think that so many times when we think about our jobs as teachers, so little of that time is spent observing. And again, I wanted to use We Got This as an opportunity to bring people back to that, that that we can look for the poetry in young people. You know, often when you ask people to describe the students that they serve, they start by saying he's a reluctant reader, or they start by saying she's dyslexic, or they start by saying that she's four grade levels behind. And, and those things are important for us to understand, but that is not the entirety of a kid. And so I want to meet the kid where the poetry is. So both those things remind me that the relationship with the people in my classroom um, and learning about them as people and making that relationship a central part of my pedagogy is one of the most important things that I can do. From visible learning research with John Hattie, we know that teacher relationships have an effect size of 0.72, which is almost double that of the 0.4 moderate effect size uh, hinge point that he talks about in that research. Yeah, absolutely. Relationships are crucial. And it makes me think of our live episode that we taped at ASCD in Chicago last spring with uh, the Chicago-based teacher, Dwayne Reed, at Mr. Reed on Twitter, who had the viral video of him rapping and singing with his students that had millions of hits on it, and it had us singing all year long. And he talks so much about the importance of relationships and that relationships with students is all about answering these three questions. It's about three questions that are worth answering. One, who am I? Two, who are they and who are we? The third one. So the who am I aspect is no relationship gets started unless people reveal who they are to somebody else. First day, you're asking questions. Where are you from? Like, what are your hobbies? Blah, blah, blah. You're telling this person about you so that they can then decide or discern if they want to be in a relationship with you. So it's important for teachers or educators to tell people as much as they can. Like that first day of school, I have an entire PowerPoint presentation where I'm showing kid pictures of me with a little big old head. And they're laughing. <laughs> like, oh, Mr. Me. Um, I'm... Um, like showing slides of my family, sisters, people that they will probably never meet, but I need them to peer into my life so they can say, oh, dang, there's something that I like about him that I can gravitate toward and try to tell as much as I can because all of my scholars are different. And I want each one to be like, oh, okay, he's introverted. Oh, he stands on top of tables. I like doing that. Oh, he plays (laughs) basketball. Oh, he can sing. Um, So tell as much as you can. Who am I? The second question, who are they? I have to figure out who my scholars are. Like one of our greatest desires as humans is to be fully known and fully loved. So 
our students want that as well. They want to know their teacher, but they also want to know that their teacher knows them. So I ask questions. What's your story? What are your interests? Um, what do you get out of coming to school? What's your home life like? Because if you tell me what your home life is like, that's going to tell me a lot about what's going on in the classroom here. And not only that, that's going to give me a lot of grace to give to you because it's like, man, I get it. I understand that your mom works the late shift and that you got to get your little brother up. And, mm-hmm. you you know, so being able to understand that relational data is so key because just like teachers use data for any other thing, it fuels our academic progress and success. So that relational data, who are they? Who are your students? And finally, who are we? So who are you all as a collective unit, both your scholars and you as the educator? And I think it's important, as I said on stage, like, It's about sharing the shine with them. So, yeah, hey, Mr. Reed, can you come speak in front of a couple thousand people? Yeah, absolutely. Can I bring my student on with me? Um, It's it's about giving you all opportunities as a team. I had a student um, last year. She messaged me after the school year, and she said, Mr. Reed, I was just listening to a song that you would play all the time during independent reading. I miss you. So it's about that connectedness, that together, that like, this is a song she probably heard a million times before. It's by Chance the Rapper. I love yeah. Chance the Rapper. Yeah. But she's like, she's listening to it, and it's like, man, I miss you, Mr. Reed. Um, so, yeah, how can you develop this culture of we in your classroom? Like, it's family. It's, it's all things we inherently want and desire. It's just a matter of how can I intentionally create that or foster that in my classroom. It's about intentionality. So when I think about those three questions that Dwayne Reed poses, who am I, who are they, and who are we? Those are deep, and those are questions that take the entire year or multiple years with a student to answer, and they don't always need to be answered in five-paragraph essays. And I think that we could use some of the cool strategies from Dan Ryder's book. Uh, Dan Ryder, co-author of one of our show's favorite books, which is called Intention, Critical Creativity in the Classroom. And the book is basically a recipe book with activity after activity of different ways that students can demonstrate rigorous whimsy. They can be, they can demonstrate high levels of rigor, but also be creative. And there are just countless activities in that book that you could have students use that you could use to answer those. Who am I question? Who are we? Uh, who are they? And so I was, I was just thinking like, man, we just had our first snowfall in Colorado and how cool would it be to have students do a color palette activity where they think about snow and what are the colors that come to mind? And maybe it's the, the yellow in their grandma's kitchen or a hot chocolate that they remember having with their parents. And so we don't always have to answer those questions in prose or in written word, but we can also use activities from Dan Ryder's book, or could students make a Franken word to describe their weekend? That's where you mash together two different words and then have them reflect on it. So we recommend you check out Intention the Book or pop back to episode six when we talk to Dan about those strategies and how we can use those to enhance our relationships. So the other side of the relational coin, we need to have good relationships with our students. That's crucial, but we need positive relationships with the adults in our building, in our schools. And this can't be understated. We've all worked in schools where we feel like we're on a team and can take on anything together. And when we're in a school like that, the alarm goes off, we're popping out of bed and putting on sunglasses because the future is so bright. But we've also worked in schools where we're competitive or jealous or bitter of other teachers around us or feel like they're not collaborative. 
And so the topic of culture in a building and relationships in a building really could be an entire episode, and it has. And it makes me think back to the Cult of Pedagogy author Jen Gonzalez from episode 37, and she has that famous analogy of the marigold flower, and that flower helps plants around it thrive, and the idea that you take on characteristics of the people you spend the most time with, and really, who am I spending time with at school, and are they making me better, or are they making me toxic? But I think a lot needs to be said about the intention we need to put into the relationships with other people, other adults in our school. And she talks about... It's funny because I think a lot of teachers are are perfectly willing to be mentors to to newer teachers. And I, I think it's... They'll say things like, if you ever need anything, I'm here. Or, you know... Come by and ask if you ever need anything. And, it, and they mean it, but a lot of teachers are kind of perfectionists. They don't want to ask for help. They don't want to show weakness. Even somebody who's brand new, they don't want to, to do that. And so they, they don't ask for the help. And so I think somebody who wants to really mentor a, a newer teacher needs to almost force themselves into that person's um, space and schedule and say, we're going to sit down and have have a meeting. I want you to come into my room after school and just let's talk a little bit about how things are going because that sets up a formal opportunity for the person to to really talk about it. I think also just sharing your own failures is huge. Sharing your own stories of, of failures because when somebody's coming into a school and they say, oh, everybody else here already knows what they're doing and you don't see the, the work that it took to get there. So even if it means we awkwardly schedule time with a colleague on our calendar, it is so worth it to develop those relationships. I always like hearing stories about athletes who've retired and then the season starts back up and they're interviewed about what they miss and they don't miss practice or the games or the money. They miss the relationships in the locker room and the people they battled with. Um, you hear about people who are in the armed forces who went through a boot camp that I would never want to go through and they actually miss it because they went through it with a team. And when you're in a deep challenge with a team, it's kind of fun. Uh, I got to spend some time with my mother-in-law, and she's four months into her retirement after decades of teaching. And what she misses the most is her community and her friendships of the classrooms around her. And it's just funny to hear her even talk about school and still use the word we, and you see how much she misses those friendships. So Invest in those, build each other up, schedule it on your calendar if you have to, because we know the the ancient proverb, alone we might run fast for a little bit, but together we can run far. That is, I love that story about your mother-in-law too, because it's it's when you default back to thinking about the group that you were with instead of the work that you were doing. And I, all this talk about collective efficacy and how, you know, in our PLCs, we are really relying on each other and, and visualizing our interdependence and using that to make student achievement happen. Um, none of that can happen if we don't have solid relationships with each other. And so I, I love that story, Ben. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to move on to the M in PERMA which comes back to meaning. And meaning really comes down to why. Why teach? Why get up early every morning? Why invest in yourself in the lives of so many children? And, you know, you're you're talented. We have so many people that we meet in this industry that could have gone into hundreds of other professions, but why teach? And What's important about it, I remember back to our episode with Stephen Shedletsky, uh, episode 26, when he started talking about Start With Why. If you say my why is all about the kids, it's it's too surface. 
And then how do you replicate it, right? Because it's not all kids. There are some kids that you probably don't love teaching all the time. And there are some kids that it just clicks and you love it. Or there are some kids that you didn't love it at the beginning, but by the end of the semester of the year, you're like, that was worth it. So the question is, well, what type of kids and what type of experiences like get specific right talk about the kids that you've loved and the kids that were really tough and that says something about who you are and as soon as you know specifically what about the kids then you can replicate it and do it on purpose right maybe your your passion is finding the kids who you see a glimmer in them, but they can't see it yet. And your job throughout the year is to help them see the reason they're amazing, the reason that they're, they're capable right? Helping them find confidence in themselves. That's what you love to do. That's more than just, it's all about the kids. Like now we're getting to specifics. You're all about the diamond in the rough. It makes it easy to replicate it, to search it, to make it happen. And and the reason we we call it, uh, take the the what's out of your why. So if if you say that your why is only about teaching or education or algorithms, well, then all of a sudden you've pigeonholed your, your yourself. So be specific about what it is. Is your why to help students discover their hidden passion for mathematics or logic? Is it to find the diamond in the rough, like Stephen said? Whatever your why is, find it and know it and rehearse it and repeat it to yourself on the hardest days. And maybe when you're doing that activity that Martin Seligman told us to do where you're writing down the five things that went best that day, maybe one of those things is how it connects to your why. And then find more parts of your day that let you focus on that. Don't just keep it within the four walls of your classroom. I think so often our lack of happiness can come when we feel like our our why um, and our what don't really match up. I came into this job to help help kids love math, but I find myself focusing so much on classroom management or grading. But maybe really reflect, what is it about the classroom management or the grading? And when are times that you can really feel your why and, and when that lines up with your what? And then backwards design to make those happen again. If we're more intentional about it, I think, again, we can take so much more control of how we find enjoy in the why of our jobs. Um, and then, you know, find it in a lunch period elective, like running an after school club or uh, in something that you can volunteer at your kid's school or your neighbor's school. Um, but find other ways to build your why into your life outside of just your professional day. And then it maybe not won't feel like you're relying so much on your job to make you happy. Do you know, does that make sense, Ben? Oh, yeah, for sure. And and I think of one of my mentors when I started teaching in Illinois was a guy named Eric Vishnik. Loved him. He taught me so much stuff. And he taught social studies. But his true why was he wanted to give students real life powerful learning experiences. And I've never met someone who did more outside of the workday with no compensation than Eric. And he wasn't like a young workaholic. He was 40 and had kids when I met him. But he organized spring break trips, summer break trips. He planned whole school democracy days. And even before Skype was a thing, he would have students at the building at like 4 a.m. video conferencing with people in Saudi Arabia. He realized that his why couldn't be fully lived because he was teaching 30 squirrely freshmen in a class that there wasn't a lot of real life experience with. And so he brought those elements, his passion, his why, before and after the school day. And because he did that, he was happier in his day because he knew at the end of the day he had that M that he was doing meaningful work to him. 
That is a super cool example. And I, I, you almost like when I'm hearing you talk about that, God, you feel like, oh my God, he must be so exhausted. But honestly, it, it gets into that self-perpetuating cycle of making you happier and, and making all of those things more meaningful. I actually think of brainwaves as an example of that. Like it, this isn't written to our job description, but it's, it's, it makes a purpose for you and I, and we've found a way to make it happen um, because we know that it's going to make us better at other aspects of our jobs. And so we've, we've made our, our trip through the letters of PERMA. Um, we talked about positive emotion, uh, engagement, relationships, and meaning, and we've arrived at the A, which stands for accomplishments. Accomplishments are a critical element of happiness and joy. And actually, if we want to attach this to uh, another psychology model, we can think about efficacy, Bandura's four sources of efficacy, which are mastery moments, um, models of success, feedback, and trust. And if we think about accomplishments, it's like those mastery moments when we're we're living in it and we feel like we've done what we set out to do. I think these are obvious to us in things like athletics. Like, you know, we have the big game, we made a goal. It feels like all of our practice led up to something. And in teaching, it feels a little bit different, right? I mean, we've got the, the, the summative assessments, maybe where we see the impact that we've had on students. But um, I, I want to encourage us to think about that in a, in a more, in a smaller way so that we can see these on a different sort of grain size. But joy can really come when we see our impact and we make that impact visible which can be difficult um, when we, we also have to consider all the qualitative and quantitative results of our efforts. And they're not as easily defined. Like, a, you know, like we think about like a balanced scorecard might be for a business. But one of our most popular episodes is with the godfather of education research, who we've already mentioned today, and I, I feel like we throw him into conversation all the time, John Hattie. And he says that the most important question is... For those three words that kind of sum it up, know thy impact. If you walk into a classroom... If you walk into a staff room, if you walk into a policy meeting and you say, my job here today is to understand my impact, you got it. It means who you have impact on. Some you do, some you don't. About what? And that's a really critical part of it. And of course, the magnitude, the strength of that impact. And that's really the focus. You're not walking into a classroom to teach kids to get through the curriculum to get them to pass tests. Impact is a lot more broader than that. So when you can quantify and qualify your impact, it is so powerful. You're no longer floundering. You're making purposeful decisions based on what you have evidence for and what you know to be effective for your students. So when you reflect on your impact, it takes you from a place of spinning your wheels to like, wow, look at how much I'm, what I'm doing matters. Look at what what where my students were at the beginning of the week and where they are now. And really taking the time to match up what I did instructionally to make that happen for them can be just a real source of joy and efficacy for us. So a big takeaway for the A for me is to gather data, to be your own action researcher. And I do not just mean seven out of my 10 kids wrote a complete sentence this week. I mean more things like so-and-so spoke up in class today or the, you know, the time when I did my cooperative learning strategies that went really smoothly. And when I had my students reflect afterwards, they were able to write down more deep structure, more deep reflections about what they got up and talked about with their with their peers. So be your own reaction researcher, evaluate and hone your impact, and know that spending time reflecting and asking questions about your effectiveness is beneficial, not only to the students that you're serving, but also to you and your own well-being and flourishing. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that if you asked yourself at the end of every lesson, what was my impact, you would be like the fastest growing teacher in your school 
And you'd also be happy. You'd be joyful because you were making improvements and you could have that purpose. Uh, the Socrates quote of the unexamined life is not worth living. Let's apply that to teaching. The unexamined lesson is not worth teaching. So thank you for reminding us, Becky, to always collect evidence of our effectiveness because it makes us better and that makes us happier and more joyful. Uh, The last thing I would add to the A for accomplishments is that it is almost impossible to have accomplishments in a state of constant technology-related distraction. Um, To say that we're constantly distracted is actually an understatement. Uh, Some studies I've read recently show the average person has 300 cell phone pickups per day, Another study shows that it takes the average person 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back to full focus after a distraction. Uh, We had a really cool opportunity to interview Cal Newport, author of Deep Work and Digital Minimalism in episode 36. That's another one of our most downloaded episodes. And he talked to us about the cost of regular distractions. One of my favorite parts of that interview was when he answered this. One of the things you say in Deep Work is that focus is the new IQ. And so can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that? So as we shift increasingly into a competitive knowledge work economy, one of the most fundamental skills that we have is the ability to concentrate without distraction. This is fundamentally what you need to do to succeed in sort of a high level knowledge work type job. Concentration is what allows you to learn complicated things quickly. Concentration allows you to produce high quality cognitive output at a fast rate. And so it's becoming one of these core skills for the type of work that we increasingly do in this economy. And sort of the main point of that that book, Deep Work, is that at the same time that this skill is becoming more valuable, we're getting worse at it. Sort of unintentionally, but due to technological innovations, distracting technological innovations, we are getting worse at concentrating at exactly the same time that it's becoming more important. And this has a lot of ramifications. You are at your best when you're doing deep work. You are at your best when you are not distracted. So turn off the anxiety-inducing red dots and notifications from Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat, and be intentional with the time that you have so that you can have achievement and accomplishments and so that you can make an impact. I'm definitely preaching to myself here. I can't tell you the number of times I've sat down to work and worked for an hour but got nothing done but move a bunch of tabs around. Focus truly is the new IQ, so hone it so you can have a true impact and true accomplishments. Oh my goodness, we just condensed two and a half years of audio down to the permatips guaranteed to help you harness the power of teaching with joy. That was a really fun one. I, I love that model, and I really like thinking through it so systematically for how it can help us in the classroom. So we really hope you enjoyed this episode today. If you missed one of those interviews that we referenced, I'll put them in show notes, all the links, so please go back and give it a listen. Uh, and if you did like what you hear, either from those episodes or from this one, please share it with a friend. Reach out on Twitter or email and share with us how you harness the power of joyful teaching. And as always... Have a great, joyful, generic time of day. <laughs>